You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Vanessa Bayer, and this is my brother, Jonah. And we are so excited to have you hear the latest season of our nostalgia-themed podcast, How Did We Get Weird? Not only do you get to know me and my brother, you get to know the stories that made us the absolutely rad people we are today. Check out our episodes where we've welcomed hilarious guests like our friend Andy Samberg. That's it. That's really it. And Queen Casey Wilson. I really went cart before the horse. I said, I think I have an opportunity to interview Leonardo DiCaprio (laughs) as a high school student. And you do not want to miss out on our funny segments like (laughs) Change.Dork. Change.Dork. And congratulations. You played yourself. Congratulations. You played yourself. Listen to our podcast, How Did We Get Weird, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fear of the unknown is the greatest fear of all. And for millions of Americans, there is no greater unknown than Alzheimer's disease. I'm Dana Torito, a writer and Alzheimer's advocate. On my podcast, The Memory Whisperer, I strive to calm your fears about the disease through thoughtful conversations with experts, care partners, and more. Action is the antidote for fear. Listen to The Memory Whisperer on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, fellow 20-somethings. It's your girl, Sydney Winter. And guess what? The wait is finally over. Season four of Crying in Public is here, and I'm flying solo for the very first time. That's right, no co-host to rein me in, just me, myself, and the mic. From relationships to careers and all the awkward encounters in between, we're covering it all. So mark your calendars and set your reminders because Crying in Public is dropping its juiciest season yet. Listen to the new season of Crying in Public on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for medical or mental health advice. Individuals are advised to seek independent medical advice, counseling, and or therapy from a healthcare professional with respect to any medical condition, mental health issue, or health inquiry, including matters discussed on this podcast. This episode discusses abuse, which may be triggering to some people. The views and opinions expressed are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent the opinions of Red Table Talk Productions, iHeartMedia, or their employees. They studied me very carefully. Mm -hmm. They listened to every television interview, everything I'd written, every Mm. radio interview. They knew what I wanted. They knew I wanted to make the world better. And they knew I was looking for better ways to do it, better ways to make films. So when they finally met me, they told me everything I wanted to hear. Nexium was a self-proclaimed self-development organization that claimed to foster personal growth and help people, quote, experience more joy in their lives, end quote. The master manipulator behind all of this was Keith Ranieri, who was called vanguard by the students in Nexium. Uh, grandiose much? Ranieri and his confederates employed the standard cult playbook of manipulation, coercion, abuse, and exploitation to control people in the organization, especially those who dared to speak out against the organization or the curriculum. Over time, however, what really caught the attention of the world was the recruitment, sexual grooming, trafficking, and abuse of girls and women that took place within Nexium and subgroups within it. Girls and women were coerced to have sex with Ranieri, and some women subjected to being branded with Ranieri's initials. Media reports have variously characterized Nexium as a pyramid scheme, a sex trafficking operation, and a cult. Everything that happened in Nexium, from the charismatic, creepy, and enigmatic leader 
to the gaslighting, to the manipulation and abuse are congruent with the architecture of a narcissistic relationship and of a cult. And there ain't no such thing as a good cult. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Mark Vicente, an author, speaker, whistleblower, and award-winning director. His defection from the Nexium cult was chronicled in the HBO series, The Vow. Mark and other courageous whistleblowers exposed the criminal activities of this organization, resulting in multiple arrests and indictments. In this episode, we are going to hear what led him to make this bold move, how he got wrapped up in cults, and how it can happen to anyone. We'll talk with him on what he learned about narcissism by surviving a cult and what he is working on now to expose narcissists and to help more people heal. Mark, welcome. I, it, it's such a pleasure. I mean, this has been such sort of an unexpected friendship that I got out of this. And so I'm just, it's just a pleasure to get to see you Likewise. and also have this incredibly important conversation with somebody who I have to say in the times we have met that you get it in such a unique way and with such depth. So this is really, it's an honor and a pleasure to well, have you I'm here to talk to here. about all I'm this. So thank you. So let's start with, I'm going to start at the top of the story, you know, which is what hooked you into Nexium, and what did you think you were signing up for? Oh my God, where do I start? I have to go further back. Okay, great. To, to, it's like when I was a kid, I think I was yearning for goodness. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I grew up in South Africa, you know, I saw a lot of bad things when I was a kid. I knew apartheid was a problem. And I was just thinking to myself, there has to be a better world, a better mm-hmm. way than this. Mm-hmm. People kill other people because of the color of their skin. They don't care. This Something's not right. So I became obsessed with, I have to find this better world. I have to find this goodness. I had the impression that the goodness I was seeking, I didn't have. Ah, interesting. And I think part of it was I grew up around... I was raised by a woman mostly at, at different times as a child. And I sort of got the message, men are assholes. So I was thinking, okay, men are uh, assholes. And then mm-hmm. I got the message from the more enlightened people in my family, white people are bad. Mm-hmm. So white guy, that means I'm screwed. Yeah, so double jeopardy there. Yeah, right. Okay, so I'm, I must be part of the problem. I have mm-hmm. to find goodness. Mm-hmm. I have to mm-hmm. do whatever I can. And I became obsessed with it. That obsession led me to all kinds of spiritual pursuits for decades. And basically what it was a religious impulse that just kept on going again and again and again. So when I sort of got introduced to Nixium, I was being introduced to honor, you know, these beautiful values and making the world better. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, maybe this is the thing. Because everything I've done thus far, I always found problems with. Maybe mm-hmm. this is the thing. This is what will help make me a better human being that can then make better film projects to make the world better. That was the hook for me. Let me ask you this then, Mark. Would you argue then that your vulnerability to an organization like Nexium was not seeing the goodness in yourself? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely correct. Because now, many years later, I feel it's very clear to me that the goodness I was looking for was always here. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. how I knew what to look for. Mm-hmm. It was this incredible projective frame that I was using. Yep with the lack of awareness that it was my frame. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. Now I'm very clear on that. Right, right. My obsession was using media Mm -hmm. to make the world better. We were operating with a government that was heinous. I mean, it was a huge problem. And so there was a group of us, I mean, amazing people I worked with, creating these anti-apartheid films. Of course, they all got banned, you know, in South Africa. And eventually they, they came out. But my obsession was using media to make the world better. Okay. All right, so you want to make the world better. And from this place of I'm not I'm not good enough, right? Which is the ultimate vulnerability. Yet it sounds like you were in some ways in kind of a good place when you came to Nexium. Like you enjoyed making films and like professionally. I, I was in a very good place. That's the thing. Sometimes people say, Oh, it's a it's a transition you're going through. Right. You're like at some mm-hmm. terrible point in your life. Not necessarily. You just have to have the right salesperson to know Mm. what you want. And what I learned later, probably I learned this in 2017 when I spoke to earlier defectors, they studied me very carefully. They listened to every television interview, everything I'd written, every Mm. radio interview. They knew what I wanted. They knew I wanted to make the world better. And they knew I was looking for better ways to do it, better ways to make films. So when they finally met me, they told me everything I wanted to hear. So were you targeted by Nexium or did you find them? I was targeted. So what happened is, so back in 2004, the film, What the Bleep Do We Know, which I directed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They saw that film. 
And they were like, this guy, we think this guy gets it, gets our mission. So they began studying everything about me. Mm. And then it was Nancy Salzman and somebody else reached out to me and invited me to a symposium with all these amazing scientists and metaphysicians and whatever. And of course, I was like, oh, that sounds amazing. So I met them and I had one of the most interesting conversations I'd ever had in my life. Nancy Salzman was very good at what she did, which was understanding how to leverage everything I wanted and Mm -hmm. everything I was concerned about and afraid of to get me to pay attention to what she was saying. And what she was offering was basically everything that I said I wanted. I want to change the world. I want to make the world better. And what she said is she said, but we need to work on you. And then she began the thing of all my problems and all my issues and all my vulnerabilities and all my fears and all my angers and all the things that had to be dealt with. So my first intensive when I went was basically them data mining my insecurities. You know, Mm -hmm. which by the way, as we know, that's the same thing that happens in a narcissistic relationship. I didn't know any of this then. It's data mining. It is data mining. I love how you put that. That needs to go on a t-shirt. Data (laughs) mining your insecurities. Mm -hmm. Because that's really sort of an interesting way to frame love bombing. Because that's what was happening. It was. I mean, they they were picking me up in Learjets, flying me everywhere, Uh. saying, we can finance the films you want to make. I was in heaven. Mm -hmm. Because it wasn't so much about me being a big deal, it was about what I could create with these resources and with these Mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. So they offered me the world. It's so interesting as I hear you say this, because if we were to really use a love bombing, almost like a relational framework for this, they, in 2004, was certainly pre-Tinder and all of that. But if you want to look at it that way, they went online, they learned all about you as one would on maybe even a dating profile nowadays. They figured out what you were about And just as a love bomber would, they told you exactly what you wanted to hear based on what they learned about you and then what they heard from you. That's precisely what a narcissistic person does early on. They promise things like, we're going to have a family and we're going to travel here and I'm going to support you when you pursue that. That's all future faking. Yeah. And But it's compelling. And the thing is, and this I only learned much later in 2017, once I started studying narcissism, I realized, oh, that's what I've been involved in. I've been in a relationship with a narcissist being Ranieri, and then all the flying monkeys, which were behaving exactly like him. Mm -hmm. That's when I began to piece together what had happened. But at the time, I didn't know. And also, there were red flags. Mm -hmm. I mean, my very first intensive, I remember around about day two, I thought to myself, something's not right. These people are so nice. They're kissing my ass so much. (laughs) And I walked into Nancy Salzman's office, and I said, I don't entirely trust what's happening here. And she Mm -hmm. said, what do you mean? And I said, I think you have some ulterior motive. I just don't know what it is. And she just nodded her head and said, well, why don't you just continue the curriculum and we'll discuss it again tomorrow. The next day, they started teaching us projection. And basically what they had me understand or believe was that all these things that I was seeing in them were just my own projections of my own bad intent. Day three, I go back to her office and I'm just mortified because I'm like, is that what I was doing? She says, well, what do you think? And of course, I came to the conclusion, maybe that's true. And that was one of the, that's what I call codified gaslighting. The Hmm. entire curriculum had baked into it this idea that whatever you were upset at was actually you. I'd even say that that's, in that case, it was codified because it was built into a curriculum, but that's every narcissistic relationship, right? It's constantly the person's bent back. And that's what starts the slow indoctrination into self-blame and self-doubt, which ends up becoming the cement and the glue of why people stay in narcissistic relationships. They really do believe it's them. They're convinced of it. That's exactly right. And also, if you're an earnest seeker of understanding, Mm -hmm. which I was, I spent all this time thinking, oh, I need to root out all these problems in me, Mm -hmm. all these projections Mm -hmm. that I'm doing, all this bad intent that I have. I need to root it all out. Mm -hmm. And I became obsessed with trying to understand what are my limitations? How am I holding myself right. back? How am I seeing the world that's inaccurate? Yeah. And it's this weird thing. You turn in on yourself. You mm. learn to literally gaslight yourself constantly. Yes. Every thought you have, every impulse, you start questioning. What if I'm wrong? Right. What if it's not them? Correct. What if it's me? But by doing that, you get to stay in the group. And the group had a value to it. You learn pretty soon what's okay and not okay. Right. Because you're watching very carefully as well. Mm-hmm. And you say something and you see eyebrows ri- rise mm. or, you, or you, this happens or that happens. And there's this weird thing of like, oh, that's not right in this environment. That's not right. That's not right. right. Which later I learned is the same thing that happens in, a, in an abusive relationship yep. with a narcissist. Mm-hmm. The person that's being abused is mapping the other person's mind mm-hmm. very carefully mm-hmm. to try to figure out what's okay and not okay. Mm-hmm. And pretty soon 
you are so lost in the self-gaslighting and the gaslighting mm -hmm. that they're doing. And all the time, what they're saying is, in order to become this kind of person, you need to examine this in yourself, this in yourself. Yep. So the carrot's mm -hmm. constantly there. You don't want to throw it away at that point because you want to be that person. Right. You want to be that person or, I mean, and again, in this case, it was very aspirational. You believed in the ideals that this organization was putting out there. It was about personal development at this time. And I think that's something that people need to understand, Mark. Like nobody says, oh, today I'm going to sign up for a sex cult. That's not what anybody says. You signed up for a professional, personal development kind of a program. I thought I was signing up for joining the Star Trek Federation. Oh, this okay. is great. You know, fairness and rights and ethics and yeah. values and mm -hmm. nobility mm -hmm. and morality. This is good stuff. But that idea that it's good stuff and it was in a professional space, I actually think put you at greater risk in a strange way. Because I think in the intimate relationship, people will also own up to, yeah, okay, it's my fairy tale. Sure, I wanted to be in love. This person came along. I devalued myself. And right. I think th there's almost more written about that if right, you will. Right. But I think in this case, the professional piece, the idea that it's a part of growth, that it's cloaked in the, a seminar, that all feels, it almost feels as though it's, like you said, use the word codified. I think that really nails it. Yeah. I think that puts people, makes people very vulnerable. Nexium just ended up blowing up as a big story. I think that there's small stories like this playing out as we so speak. Many, so many, so many. You met people in there that were like powerful people, yes. successful yes. people. Yes. They seemed legitimate. Yeah, yeah. And I realized later that's what they used me for as well. Correct. They used me to legitimize him mm -hmm. and the entire thing. Exactly. I, I think that the legitimization of a cult leader or leader, it, we don't even know that they're a cult leader yet per se, but that legitimization through other people, it really sets up that recruitment pipeline. And honestly, that plays out in intimate relationships as well, because what happens is a person will say, this person was their ex-partner and that person had a good job or they're from a good family or they're really attractive or whatever index they're using and saying, well, if that person thought they were good, why wouldn't I? And it's a very similar mechanism. Yeah. Also, you're trapped by your own need to have that world exist. I wanted there to be goodness mm -hmm. in the world. Mm -hmm. I wanted mm -hmm. there to be a place yeah. that I could go and other people could come, that we could learn about ourselves so we could behave in a better way so yeah. the world would be better. And the problem is, if you at that point early on say to yourself, when you're really enamored with what you're learning, this is all just full of shit, mm -hmm. you have to give up that dream. Yes, you do. Yes, and you do. we're very married mm -hmm. to whatever it is, be it the mm -hmm. romantic partner, be it my dream, whatever it was, giving that dream up launches you into an existential crisis you yeah. do not want to go mm -hmm. into. But you know what? Nobody wants that. Right. Nobody wants that. You're sort of forced into it. Because in my case, I saw things that were so morally reprehensible that I could not hold on to that dream. Right. I had to right. just burn the entire thing to the ground. Right. I had to. And hopefully refashion it yes. in a healthier way that that's based time. on you, not on other people. And I think that that's the real, that's the real challenge too. So you use the term, you said... Okay, I started becoming aware I was in a narcissistic relationship. How did you even become, like, how did that term come into your purview? And yeah. when did you start using it and using that frame? Were you already out at that point? Were you no, deep in? No, I was still in. So what happened is Bonnie, my wife, had been out for a while. Yeah. And she'd been studying a lot. Mm -hmm. And she was working with an exit counselor and they were trying to figure out how do we help Mark? So there was a lot of strategy going on. One of the things that was interesting is I for many years, had to call Ranieri every single day. It was something I had to do. And if you didn't? It was a problem. Okay. So I had to report to a bunch of other people and groups that I hadn't done it for whatever reason. What was my weakness? What was my fear? What was my vulnerability? You know, what was my lack of character? What was my lack of vision? Whatever it was. So I was like very military in my calling every day. And at a certain point, when I realized something was wrong, and it was around about March, April 2017, when I began to suspect that he might be lying, I started calling less. And mm. I knew he would know. Mm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I realized a week had gone by, I have to call him. Mm -hmm, and Bonnie mm -hmm. said to me, I want you to read an article before you call him. And she gave me an article. I don't remember who it was by, but it was about the 20 things a narcissist will do mm. in a relationship mm. with you. And it was, you know, like... Uh, you know, circular conversations from hell, gaslighting, this, that, the other, a, a whole bunch of things that, I, that we now understand. So I read the article, it's 20 things. Mm -hmm. I get on the phone with him and the article's in my mind and we begin speaking and I sort of tick off in my mind 10 of those things. Mm. And when I hang up on the call, I realize I'm never speaking to him again. Okay. And I go to Bonnie and I go, he did 10 of them. Okay. And then I realized, holy shit, 
is this guy a narcissist? Is this like some kind of spiritual psychopath? And she was very kind and she just sort of nodded gently, mm. you know. And that was one of the things that began the unraveling. And then I began investigating a lot more and learning what he was actually doing with a woman. And I was mm -hmm. just, I was rageful. But before I knew what was going on, she was trying to show me a template, a pattern mm -hmm. of what I was mm -hmm. dealing with mm -hmm. because I didn't know. Right, right. And right. then I could talk to an exit counselor and then I could start to listen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because I was still so enamored with the idea, and this is a difficult thing to explain, maybe it's not. I thought he and I shared the same values. Yeah. I thought to turn against him was to turn against my own values. We were so married in my mm -hmm, mind in that mm -hmm. way. So for me to question him, for me to sort of allow the thought into my mind, what if this guy is a bad dude? Mm -hmm. What if this is an evil mofo? Meant that I may have to dismantle everything I thought was good. And that's terrifying. It is. But I had to. That was the, 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 the day that I word. approached that question, I was completely suicidal. I had all kinds of suicidal ideation going on, a whole bunch of things. And thank goodness, a part of me, you know that meta part of you that's watching everything? Mm -hmm. A part of me said, Mark, you've never thought about suicide. Mm -hmm. Ever. Mm -hmm. Something's wrong. And the other part of me goes, you're right. Something's wrong. And that was the true crack. Thank goodness you connected the dots in that way. You could easily see how it would go another way oh, for somebody oh, else. Completely. You know, because that I, what you did—that sort of walking away from a spiritual—it so it would be like somebody losing faith in an organized religion. They believed in something they no longer do. And in a different way, it's when a person learns this, for example, their parent is like this. And the parent is someone they held in high esteem, in high regard. They loved the idea of family. They were devoted to that. And then one day, the whole thing crumbles. That is quite a day. And you had that day. What is amazing, though, is that you were willing to take the, the article that Bonnie gave yeah. you and implement it into the conversation, that you had enough ego strength to actually allow that to happen. Because some people would say, get this article away from me. You don't know what you're talking about. That you were willing to integrate that was that flexibility, which you may not have known you had, ended up saving you. I didn't you. know that. But also she was very smart. I learned later in talking to people and showing them articles to never show them an article that had the word cult in it. Ah, uh, interesting. Don't yeah, do yeah, that. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah, yeah. she was careful in presenting me with things that wouldn't trigger me into defense posture. That was one of those things that seemed unrelated to me. Yeah. So I said, okay, I'll read it. But then when I spoke to him and I realized this niggly feeling I've had for yeah. over a decade in our conversations, what if it's this thing that I just read? What if this hmm. What if this circular conversation from hell is a circular conversation from hell and is not that I just can't keep up with him? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This guy might just be like a sociopathic moron. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, I'm trying to make sense of it. In fact, I realized later as I tried to wake other people up, they were all trying to make sense of stuff that didn't make sense, thinking that they were the problem, that they didn't have the intellect, which is what I thought too. Right. I thought I didn't have the intellect to understand genius ideas. They're not genius no, ideas not. at all. No. Mm -mm. In fact, some no. of them are just psychopathic hogwash. Mm -hmm. That's right. It was all a means of main, ma maintaining this incredible amount of control over yeah. all these people. And he got away with it. Now, you know some of this, but I'd love to use this as a teaching point for everyone listening, which are there are certain universal psychological dynamics that exist in cults. I would argue that these also exist in narcissistic relationships, okay? So I'm going to just try these out on you and see if they fit, okay? So this would be being tested by the leader. This might be through abuse. It may be through a demand for sacrifice and that the people who are in the organization will attempt to show tremendous devotion or be perfect and recruit other people. When you said you had to call every day, all of mm -hmm. that, would you agree that that dynamic was there? Absolutely. What happened is, you know, you're, you're signing up for one thing. And then as time goes along, you're being asked to do things that might feel uncomfortable. Yeah. And what they're doing is they're basically testing your boundaries. Yep. How far can we go? Mm -hmm. And even if, like at first I was extremely defiant and they would say to me, you know, this defiance you have, this is a limitation. Yep. Because you're just saying no to everything without evaluation. You're not evaluating anything. And I was like, well, I don't want to be the kind of person that doesn't evaluate, so maybe I'll be a little less defiant. I wish I'd kept it, came back later. But yes, constant boundary testing. Right. You know, like the curriculum got more and more weird. Like later on, there was this curriculum called Ethicist and something called SOP and Jeunesse, the birthplace of what would become DOS, this, this secret underground thing. And there was talk about if you did something that went against your own values, then you had to do some kind of penance. Ah. And the more severe the penance was, the better. And a part of me was like, this feels a lot like religion mm -hmm, mm -hmm. when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. 
something's not right. But then you don't want to be the person that stands up and says, you guys are full of it Mm -hmm. because that's not going to go well. And at that point, I did know that anybody who had left previously that said anything was destroyed. Destroyed how? Their legal team destroyed them. These people ended up being indicted for things. Crimes were made up. They were destroyed financially to the point that when they went to court to sort of file bankruptcy, they were stopped by these people. They destroyed reputations. They destroyed a whole bunch of things. I was well aware later on that if I was the person that spoke out, it was going to be a huge problem. Now, behind closed doors, starting in 2015, I was asking a lot of questions. And right. I, I could see it wasn't going well because eventually he was going to handle mm-hmm. me. But yes, the boundary testing is constant. It happens in all kinds of ways. It mm-hmm. happens in the curriculum, the things you're asked to do. Yep the things you're asked not to talk Mm -hmm, about, mm -hmm. it's all there. And it's exactly the same as a relationship. 100%. It's the same thing. And this is the thing I desperately want people to understand. It is the same. There might be (laughs) slight variations, but the pattern, if you can look at the mathematics underneath (laughs) it, it is identical. I mean, completely identical. And I think people don't recognize how much boundary they keep. It's your sovereign territories getting annexed. It's like a slow invasion. And one day you look up and you're like, oh, I got swallowed up by this other country. And you're no longer your own sovereign individual. You've completely come into their system and you're almost like, it's almost like you've become parasited. Like now you can only serve the host. It's so true. That's exactly right. That's a great metaphor. And the problem is you don't have the strength anymore Mm -mm, to fight the way you did before because part of you has been hollowed out. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely hollowed out. And they count on that and that constant encroaching, but then that fear of whatever that unnamed fear would be. And I think a lot of it's primal. It's Fear of abandonment, fear of being alone, fear of being an outsider. But the test, and this is where we get into this real problem, I think, in culture at large, is that we associate love with being tested, that I have to jump through these hoops to show my love, to show my devotion. That, unfortunately, is how love stories have often been crafted. And I think Colton love stories share that, is how can I show my love? How many love letters can I write? How many things can I do? Really, it's instead of simply being loved because you're you, it's is I guess it's 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 that's time immemorial. One could argue that's also sort of a transactional relationship. No, that's so that's so good. And also, like if if honestly, if somebody's testing you, run. Right. Oh, always, run. always run. If you're being tested in a relationship, yeah. run. But I think unfortunately, a lot of people like the game and they almost like to think I've earned something. Not saying that's right, but I think that's the messaging because many children, especially those with narcissistic parents, felt that they had to win the parent over. That dynamic yes. gets repeated. In, in relationships in adulthood. Another dynamic we see is the charismatic and exploitative leader. Clearly, you saw that. Would you have described Keith as charismatic? No. That's interesting. That's what's so interesting. Mm. See, now that I've spent a lot, lot more time honestly studying some of your work and other people's work, understanding covert narcissism is so yeah. interesting yeah. because mm-hmm. he is not overt. He's not grandiose. Yeah, great. In fact, yeah. he talks mm-hmm. about humility. He acts in a way that's very humble. Mm-hmm. He's constantly downplaying his accomplishments. He gets other people to sort of talk yeah. about them, but he downplays them. So I didn't see grandiose. What I saw was humility. Mm-hmm. But again, there was a mm-hmm. lot of gaslighting going on because I remember early on, 2006, I think, I was at the gym with him and I saw him get really angry at somebody mm-hmm. behind the counter. And I said to him, I've never seen you angry before. He says, I wasn't. Mm -hmm. Well, what were you doing? He says, I was just using a tone to match his tone. Mm. And part of me was like, it seemed like anger. The other part of me was like, all right. So there's all this gaslighting going on, but I believed the version that he was selling. Mm. And also what happens is if you question that version, everybody else around you says, really? That's so weird. Do you want to work on why you're perceiving that? Ah, uh, right. So so it's always housing it back into the individuals to not call him out. Did you were you familiar with the term communal narcissism as At you that were point, coming? No. You were not. No, okay. So no. you, down the line you became familiar no, with actually, it. No, actually I think I actually learned that from you. As I yeah, I remember thinking when I learned that term I was like, "Oh, that's what we're dealing with here." My session with Mark will continue after this break. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. 
And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com iHeart. Identity theft protection starts here. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. And looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fear of the unknown is the greatest fear of all. And for millions of Americans, there is no greater unknown than what to do when faced with an Alzheimer's diagnosis. My name is Dana Torito, and my podcast, The Memory Whisperer, takes a closer look at Alzheimer's disease and those affected by it. Like many of you, I've experienced the disease firsthand. I've been an advocate and care partner for decades and have written extensively about the subject. Each week, I'll talk to people who've been personally affected by the disease and learn how they coped with it. Folks like TV personality Lisa Gibbons. Action is the antidote for fear. And nurse and dementia researcher Dr. Fayron Epps. We no longer can be silent. We have to speak up. We have to share our experiences so we can help each other and learn from each other. Listen to The Memory Whisperer on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Martha Stewart, and we're back with a new season of my podcast. This season will be even more revealing and more personal, with more entrepreneurs, more trailblazers, more live events, more Martha, and more questions from you. I'm talking to my cosmetic dermatologist, Dr. Dan Belkin, about the secrets behind my skincare. Walter Isaacson, about the geniuses who change the world. Encore Jane about creating a billion-dollar startup. Dr. Elisa Pressman about the five basic strategies to help parents raise good humans. Florence Fabricant about the authenticity in the world of food writing. Be sure to tune in to season two of the Martha Stewart Podcast. Listen and subscribe to the Martha Stewart Podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We have been hearing from Mark Vicente about his experience in Nexium, an abusive cult led by Keith Raniere that proclaimed to be focused on self-improvement. Nexium used all of the techniques that we see in a narcissistic relationship, including love bombing by data mining, which is an intense attempt to learn about another person so you can learn their pressure points and manipulate them as well as labeling any questioning of Nexium as a flaw within Mark or the other members. Then it turned to confusion and a slow erosion of boundaries and sense of self. Mark's story is a reminder that what happens within a cult-like organization and with a cult leader is pretty damn similar to what happens in any narcissistic relationship. A hijacking of the self. 
So communal narcissism, you know, for anyone listening, there's a, the technical term for it is agentic extroversion. So what that means is extroversion in the service of getting validation. And in his case, it was this, I'm going to draw all these people together, but it would be this sort of false humility because one who's saving the world can't be, you know, can't be out there and acting like a sort of a car salesperson and sort of being pretentious and preening about. So there would be this sort of false kind of, almost like the way he even presented himself, kind of sloppily dressed and all of that. But it was all posturing because he actually thought he could save the world, which is incredibly grandiose. So all of that extroverted behavior, all of that bringing a group together, he was selling it as a means of saving the world, being a grand humanitarian, being better than everyone else. Exactly. It blew my mind because he had us bonded to each other. Yes. Because it was difficult to bond to him Mm -hmm. because this is a truly weird individual. But also even to think he was weird, you realize, okay, there's something wrong with me that I think that. So he had us bond with each other, create very tight bonds. I mean, there were groups of us that committed to things you know, with each other. And if any one of us failed, we all would do a penance. So everything was through pain, this idea of pain and love being intertwined. I really thought he was humble. But later I understood everything he was doing was for fuel. Mm -hmm. Validation. The the grandiosity Mm -hmm. was very covert. It was there because he wouldn't get necessarily personally upset at somebody if he was there was an offense against him. He would get other people to get upset okay. about it. So he would triangulate, triangulate with, yeah. between mm-hmm. everybody mm-hmm. and get some and say to somebody else, you know, Mark doesn't seem to understand the value of what I've given him. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really a problem for him mm-hmm. that he doesn't understand this. I think it might be worth having a discussion with him. Mm-hmm. What he mm-hmm. wasn't saying is, I feel slighted and not important, and I want you to go after Mark and break him down because he didn't give me the requisite praise That's right. that I want. That was the truth. That was the truth, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But that triangulation, we see that in narcissistic family systems too. The parent using siblings in the family, other extended family members to get what they need from another member of the family. And then what happens is that person will relent. They may not agree with what the narcissist is asking for, but when you have that many people surrounding you, our human need to belong, especially in an organization like that, that's why everyone was coming together, it it draws us to say, okay, I'm going to give in. And it's a really big part of how, whether in a cult or a family structure, and one again, I think a narcissistic family is really a cult with a strong leader and then, and and, or a manipulative leader. Totally. And the other thing that you raise that's important is that people often say, well, why didn't you just leave? Well, why didn't you speak out? The issue is you're in this dynamic, like be a family dynamic, be it a cult dynamic, where if you say something, there are costs. Yeah. And there's this existential dread you constantly have mm-hmm. of being thrown out of the tribe. Yeah. And that's a big thing. Huge. So it's, it's, it is belonging, but it, it's the terror of being cast out at mm-hmm. night. And you've given up a lot in your life already. So these now are your bonds. Maybe this is the way you're making money. You don't have a lot of options anymore. And to go out into the forest at night alone cast out of the tribe is like death. Well, it was death for thousands and thousands of years for our species. And I think our reptilian brain hasn't let go of that fear. And so ostracism is probably right up there with death as a primary fear. So it's actually, we would say anyone who's actually that willing to walk away from the group, that's almost not even normative from a mental yeah. health spacing. Oh, I don't even care what anybody thinks. So people care. People care deeply. Yeah. And also how the idea that you... You would not feel you could speak about this person that everyone values so much. This becomes the emperor's clothes phenomenon that we see in narcissism all the time of people, whether it's a family member, a matriarch, a patriarch, head of a company, even a globally recognized religious leader, where people might look sideways and say, this doesn't feel right, but who's really going to be the one to say the beloved elderly grandmother is actually a monster? Yeah. You know, and that, and as you say, the risk of ostracism and, I would argue, the risk that you could be wrong. Yes, and the risk to your worldview that you're trying desperately to hold together, which is a much bigger deal than people might realize. You're trying to keep your psyche glued Mm -hmm, together mm -hmm. when you know on a very deep level Mm -hmm. something's not right. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, all of what you're saying is just, it's cult 101. I'm not even going to belabor it anymore because you just laid it all out. So, Oh, one other thing I yes, want to say. Yes, please. 
In terms of data mining, there was one particular intensive that they had us figure out what was the ways we were most afraid of dying. Mm -hmm. And they came up with like 12 different ways. Something that's eating you from the outside, something that's eating you from the inside, being being abandoned, being left alone, thinking you're crazy, nothing making sense. So there are all these things that they data mined about what are our worst terrors. Mm -hmm. And all of those things were used later on. At some point, the minute you decided, this is my boundary now, I'm maintaining this boundary, that information was used. That information was used against me in court. I mean, when I was facing up against Ranieri in court and his defense counsel was coming after me, he was slipping them notes all the time because he knew me very, very, Mm -hmm. very well. And so interesting, every time he slipped them a note, they'd come up with a question that was so targeted towards me. Mm-hmm. My worst fears, yep. my, my hopes, my terrors. In any cult-like mechanism, it's getting that information from people. What could hurt them? What could make them vulnerable? Happens in literally every narcissistic relationship. People say love bombing to them is private jets and dozens of roses and champagne. I said, no, that's not the love bombing part you need to be concerned with. The love bombing part which to me, getting all that intel on someone, you're calling it data mining, is when they lean in and look into your eyes and say, just tell me your greatest fear, baby. I want to take care of you. And you just gave them the keys to the kingdom because that's going to be turned around and used against you. And the number of people, for example, who go through really contentious narcissistic divorces, knowing that parent would literally take a bullet for those children. That's what they go for. Not even that they wanted the kids in their house. They just simply know that this is how I can hurt them. So that weaponizing of your vulnerability is a classical part of any narcissistic relationship, whether it's in a cult or a one-on-one relationship. I remember one of them once saying to me when I, early days, when I, when I was thinking this isn't right, somebody said to me, I thought you wanted to be a noble man, Mark. Mm. And that to me is like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that hurts. It absolutely hurts. And it's a gaslight because you are being a noble man. So in essence, by making that comment or denying that, I hear about people going through this all the time in underpaid positions in mental health and academia. And when the person pushes back and says, I need a raise, well, don't you care about the populations we work with? And they're saying, yeah, I care about that. I also care about my electricity. But that is gaslighting. And people don't even think of it that way. They think, oh gosh, I'm just a mercenary, awful person, or I'm not a noble person. So I think people don't even know these things are happening. And maybe it's because it's not taught. And maybe it's not taught because the systems and institutions in place benefit from the ability to manipulate absolutely. that way. They yeah. absolutely mm-hmm. benefit from it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. We will be right back with this conversation with Mark. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fear of the unknown is the greatest fear of all. And for millions of Americans, there is no greater unknown than what to do when faced with an Alzheimer's diagnosis. My name is Dana Torito, and my podcast, The Memory Whisperer, takes a closer look at Alzheimer's disease and those affected by it. Like many of you, I've experienced the disease firsthand. I've been an advocate and care partner for decades and have written extensively about the subject. Each week, I'll talk to people who've been personally affected by the disease and learn how they coped with it. Folks like TV personality Lisa Gibbons. Action is the antidote for fear. And nurse and dementia researcher Dr. Fayron Epps. We no longer can be silent. We have to speak up. We have to share our experiences so we can help each other and learn from each other. Listen to The Memory Whisperer on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Martha Stewart. 
And we're back with a new season of my podcast. This season will be even more revealing and more personal with more entrepreneurs, more trailblazers, more live events, more Martha, and more questions from you. I'm talking to my cosmetic dermatologist, Dr. Dan Belkin, about the secrets behind my skincare. Walter Isaacson about the geniuses who change the world. Encore Jane about creating a billion-dollar startup. Dr. Elisa Pressman about the five basic strategies to help parents raise good humans. Florence Fabricant about the authenticity in the world of food writing. Be sure to tune in to season two of the Martha Stewart podcast. Listen and subscribe to the Martha Stewart podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I'd like to switch gears a little bit because people want to understand this a little bit and talk about the leader. You've hinted at a little bit because I hate even putting it this way because he is such a horrible person. But what was compelling about him? You said he's not charismatic. You said he was vulnerable in his narcissistic presentation. So what was compelling? To me, he leveraged our values Mm. and represented himself as being the gatekeeper of those values. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because I've spoken to a lot of women who said, no, he wasn't sexy. He Mm -hmm. wasn't this. Nobody wanted to sleep with him. No. Nobody wanted to kiss him. He was a schlub. He, he really, is a schlub. He is He's a, a schlub. schlub. He is a schlub. But, but you see, this was part of the whole thing. The whole thing was that he said he was a renunciate. He'd given up all worldly things. It didn't matter what he wore. He wore the same shirt. He was smelly. as Because material things were not important. This is matters of ethics and yeah. the mind and yeah. consciousness and stuff, et cetera, et cetera. So, so yeah, so... To me, it was what he represented. He basically, at the very beginning, my very first conversation with him was five hours long, a lot of data mining. He basically got me to believe that everything that he was doing was all I'd ever wanted. Now, once I understood later on a little bit more about NLP, this is interesting. Yeah, yeah. I had a meeting with Nancy Salzman at a, a law firm in LA about some project. This was many years ago. And she went into that law firm and she was asking the lawyers a lot of questions and she was writing things down. And eventually, and they were getting miffed, by the way, understandably. And eventually I said to her when we left the meeting, what are you doing? She says, I'm making notes of keywords. They'll say something and I'll ask them a question. I'll dig down deeper on what the thing is that they're talking mm-hmm. about until mm-hmm. I can find a word that really moves them because later I'm going to use that word again. So for instance, what they would do, and Ranieri taught her this, I think. Let's say you say to me, I say, what do you want? And you say, well, I want love. When you say love, what do you mean? Well, I want, let's say, I want community. Okay, so when you say community, like what is, what is community to you? And you'd say something like togetherness. And maybe togetherness is that final word that it's hard for you to figure out, but that, that word togetherness means something to you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Later on, I'd say, you know, Dr. Romani, togetherness is as important to me as it is to you. Mm. And I'm firing that word in your mind again. That was the stuff that they were doing all the time. And that was a lot of NLP stuff. Yes. And do you want to explain a little bit about what NLP is? The idea is that every word you use represents some deep, unconscious thought object to you. Love is a whole package of things inside of you. It fires things inside of you. And if you can understand what that person's version of that word is and what it fires in them, you can then use that word to manipulate them into a certain behavior. That to me in in the most simple terms is what it does. So what he was doing was he was doing that all the time. And then he would start to use those words back. And that creates this kind of trance because you're hearing back everything that you believe 
And you start to think, this guy knows me better than my parents. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because that's what they're trying to do. That's exactly right. The only difference is they know how to use this tech, so to speak, which your parents didn't. Correct. And most people don't. But when it's brought into these kinds of spaces to be able to fully control someone, it is. It's using language as the, really, all the hidden, I, I love that you use the word trance. Because I think that's what it is. When people are using language and the way you are about things that matter to you, you really do go into a trance. Do go into a trance. Mm -hmm. You go into, you know, Mm -hmm. what they what they call deep structure. Yeah. And the whole a lot of the tech that that was being used was to put a person into deep structure where things get very, very fuzzy. Mm -hmm. And it Mm -hmm. it is transinduction Mm -hmm. is what's going on. And we all learn to do it to different degrees. Once I realized what was going on, I was horrified. I was horrified that we learned this. I was horrified we were doing this with other people. And I think the thing I always struggled with, in fact, I know that Bonnie, myself, Sarah, Nippy, and a bunch of us really didn't like the way things were going because we felt sometimes once a person was in that state, you were then putting into their minds things that weren't theirs. And we hated doing that. Right. So right. we just thought, well, screw it. We're just going to figure out what they want as opposed to trying to bend their will in some way. Right. And so we were often, you know, given, given shit about it. You're not being precise enough. You're not being this enough. But we knew something wasn't right. We just couldn't figure out what it was. Right. I'm coming back to your word trance because I've never thought of it in this realm. But I think about trance alongside trauma bonding because that's what trauma bonding is. So thank you, Mark. You've given me quite a gift today just using that word. Because when we think of what a trance is, it's not quite hypnosis, but it's just sort of otherworldly. Like it's like that dancing snake in the jungle book that kind of moves around. Like that's a trance. And I think that in the trauma-bonded phase, there are times the person's doing exactly what you want them. They're doing everything, whether it's in line with values or fantasy or future or love. You're in that trance. Then the trance quickly gets stopped. And that is very destabilizing in which a person wants to go back into that trance-like state and will do whatever they need to do to get back into that state, which usually means continuing to succumb and be subjugated by the narcissistic person. That's such a good point. I actually have a great example. When I started working with Ranieri on this film project, I wrote a treatment for the project. He gave me the idea, I wrote the treatment, he read it, and then his right-hand woman at that time, Pam Kayford, said to me, he really likes it. He thinks you're a really good writer. So I went to have a meeting with him that night, and he says, this is really good. That was the last time he ever said anything I did was good. Mm -hmm. And I kept on holding on Mm -hmm. for maybe one day, he'll think Mm -hmm. something I'm doing Mm -hmm. is good enough. Mm -hmm. That was a 10-year hold on. Mm -hmm. Until eventually I was like, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. I actually know what I'm talking about. But it took a while. It takes a while. But that idea that you're forever chasing that high of that moment when they told you you hung the moon and you'll never get it again. But that chase can keep people stuck for decades. And the other thing I learned recently, which I know you know about, is this, this whole intermittent reinforcement yes, thing. Yes, yes, slot machine. <laughs> it, it's just like it, you never yeah. know when the good stuff's yeah. coming and you never know when the bad stuff's coming. And sometimes you today you do the thing that yesterday was good, but now today it's not Correct. good anymore. Yes. You're like, yeah. what is going on? Right. And then you ask questions and they give you some weird explanation that doesn't totally make right. sense, but it must be you that can't understand. Mm-hmm. And I know that happens in narcissistic relationships. Oh, oh, completely. It's in coercive controlled relationships and any narcissistic relationship that up and down, in and out, constantly being destabilized and constantly trying to get back to that good moment means people give up more and more and more of themselves. Boundaries, a sense of self, even their bodies to be able to keep it going because they want that so much. And it really does transfer to what happens early in life, especially with a narcissistic parent. For the moment that that narcissistic parent noticed you, the child spends their entire childhood fighting for those scraps, for those moments. Yes. And that's that's really the system that they're using there. So then Bonnie shows you the article... You know what you're dealing with. Yeah. At that moment, that penny drop moment, the article that says the 20 things narcissists do, and he only did 10. I'm surprised. I bet the other 10 were there. I Probably if I dug deeper, yeah. I would have, but I was in so much denial still, right. you know? How did things change once you had a word for it? I no longer felt crazy mm. because I'd felt crazy mm. for 12 years. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's a long time to feel and crazy. And suddenly I was like, wait, is that's what's going on? And there was a kind of disbelief at first. I was like, so he's actually got a pathology. He's not wise. Maybe he doesn't have that IQ. Maybe he's not some enlightened version of something. Like maybe he's just got some serious problems in his brain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That gave me so much foundation mm-hmm. to finally put a little tippy toe on the ground and say, okay, let me explore this. And I couldn't cross the threshold until I had suicidal ideation. Mm, okay, That was okay. the threshold. Mm-hmm. 
Because everything, Bonnie had been so smart. The exit counselor she was working with and then I began working with was very smart in how they did everything, very carefully. But once I realized like I was insane, when I say I was insane, the suicidal ideation to me was I'm insane. That was the moment I'm like, all right, you need to like make space now. Because I was holding on so desperately to this worldview. And once I made space, I mean, I'm not going to say it was fun. It was terrible. It was like the world is over. And then I went into this rage Okay, this guy is a narcissist. I just threw everything out, but I made space to start trying to figure out what had happened. And then the other thing I was dealing with as well was finally recognizing something had been done to me. I had been damaged. Mm -hmm. That recognition was very important because then I wasn't thinking to myself, I'm crazy. Just, oh, I've been damaged. Mm -hmm. Something's wrong with my perception. This has been done to me in a very precise way over a period of time. And then I began reading about narcissism obsessively looking to see what happens in narcissistic abuse. What are the symptoms? Oh, there's the PTSD. There's the complex PTSD. There's the like feeling unhinged from reality. There's all the panic attacks, all the stuff. And Everything that I went in for 12 years prior, like panic attacks was one of the things. I had terrible anxiety. It all came back. Yeah, of course. It of all course. It was just waiting for me. Yeah. Because all that had happened was that all those things had been compartmentalized. By shutting down your gut and having your gut shut down and then you continue to shut it down, you compartmentalize normal things, normal outrages, normal upsets, normal like suspicions. And then it all came, you know, all came back. And then once I realized what had happened to me, I was reading constantly. Mm -hmm. I was watching videos constantly. I was on the internet trying to learn. At that point, Bonnie was thrilled. She was like, well, here's this and here's this and here's this mm -hmm. and here's that. And she created this incredible sort of exit list to read. And so I read it all and then we began sharing with every, uh, shared it with, mm -hmm. with Sarah and Nippy and we began sharing with everybody. Not only about narcissism, but also about cults without speaking about cults. Right. We had to speak right. about high conflict groups, Yep. you know, mm -hmm. high control groups. We high couldn't talk groups, about yeah. cults mm -hmm. at that point. And we had to be careful with narcissism because if we, if we talked about a spiritual narcissist, they got upset. Who's they? The people that we were trying to wake up. Because oh. also what happened is every time any of us posted anything online, the inside were working manically yeah, yeah, yeah. to try to sort of say it was disinformation, basically, or we're just being victims. You know, we finally succumbed to our own victimhood. I mean, one of the things they said about me was, oh, Mark's just giving in to his wife. He has no mind of his own. Well, no, I, I didn't give in. I just finally saw the light. Right. I finally but, saw that she was right. But it's there's a desperation. You know, cult-like organizations, When once they sense that the wagons are circling, there is a desperation. They move quicker and quicker and quicker. And there's an intensity. That's all narcissistic relationships too. The intensity sort of starts to swing up once they sense that somebody's starting to see who they are. And the other thing, the smear campaign. Yes. It's identical. That's what it was. Yes, it's a smear. It's identical. It's identical. I mean, and the smear campaign for a person going through any narcissistic relationship, many people will report that to be as, if not more, traumatizing than the narcissistic relationship. Because after a moment, you're like, okay, this person's a narcissist and they're behaving as a narcissist would. But that they've recruited all these people I once believed had my back. And some of the folks recruited into the smear campaign aren't necessarily narcissistic themselves. They they just are still so caught in that traumatically bonded kind of a situation. They're trying to keep it from being ostracized. They're trying to justify. They want it to be true. And so they are willing. They're willing to do this harm to someone else. That smear campaign model, I'll tell you, the harm there is actually, I as a clinician struggle sometimes more with clients, not around the narcissistic abuse piece, the one-on-one, -on -one, as much as the smear campaign and the utter devastation that comes out of that many people coming at them in that way. It's, it's horrifically traumatic. It's interesting because yeah. that is the thing I still hurts. Yes, yes, absolutely. Him, him I'm like, whatever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I faced him in court, yeah, yeah. guys in prison yeah, for a long yeah. time, I, whatever. My friends or those I thought were my friends, yeah. that hurts. That hurts a lot. And in some ways, there's still some good things there. You're saying, this is not the person I saw manipulating and doing all this damage. It almost quadruples or quintuples the tragedy because you say, okay, I see the game this person's playing, but now they've literally turned this game back against me. And the collateral losses you're piling up are enormous. That betrayal trauma yes. is is very profound. It is. We should talk about betrayal trauma for a minute because trauma is such a... It's such a multifaceted thing, right? The traumas we think of, you get mugged on a street late at night or assaulted. You get into a terrible car wreck. You watch some harm come to somebody, go through a tornado, those sorts of traumas. The betrayal trauma starts going into a different space where there is such a fundamental 
breach of trust by somebody you may have trusted in an implicit way that crashes down your worldview, it gets a person in a way very differently than those other forms of trauma. But the problem, Mark, is, is that a lot of people in the world don't recognize the betrayal trauma for how profound it is. Oh, yeah, 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 people lie all the time. People twist a knife in your back. Oh, people cheat. And so it gets minimized as though getting mugged in the street is a more valid form of trauma than betrayal. And yet again, as a shrink, I'll tell you, betrayal trauma actually twists a person's mind up. And because what it also does, yes, it's a person you trusted, it's a person maybe you loved mm-hmm. that turns mm-hmm. against you. But what yeah. happens is your concepts of goodness. Yeah and trust mm-hmm. get broken. Yeah, that's exactly right. They are not easy to, to repair. No. You know, I still don't feel that trust is repaired. I am hypervigilant still. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I even going into a situation where I, I say to myself, you can trust that you're going to be okay whatever happens. Right. I still have to go, I'm not so sure if I can trust that I'm okay. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I can trust mm-hmm. this person. That's right. So there's a constant dialogue going on about trust and about goodness, which colors the entire world. So goodness for me now, although I feel so much of it is more intact, I struggle to really... I struggle when I'm dealing with people because I never want to say it's all good. And I don't even really want to say it's all bad. And then I feel a bit like, I don't know, mm-hmm. uh, maybe I should just stay away. So many survivors of narcissistic abuse will say that, yeah, slowly but surely they come back online, they feel more normal. But that permanent revision of what trust is, I my work with folks is to help them see that it's a new, more wise, richer, kind of different kind of take on the truth. It's not black and white. It's not that. It's a loss of innocence once you've gone through betrayal, trauma, and narcissistic abuse. And the world, things have to be earned in a different way by people. People have to earn your trust. And if they're not up for it, they say, well, you're very cynical. I'm like, oh, then, okay, I then am. call me cynical. We're good. So I, This one does yeah. hit me because I still yeah. I feel this pain now in my head. I'm like, wow. Yeah. That's still strong for me. Yes, it's very strong. That Because people really say, I went through the world and I had a really good worldview and it forced collaborations and I got to talk to strangers. And as a fellow survivor, I'll tell you, I'm very arm's length. It, take, it takes me a long time to warm up and gain trust. And I work with folks saying, and you accept that as part of you. You had even used the word damage before, and I would argue you are not damaged. You were harmed. I hate the word damaged because it reflects something as though you yourself have been, you've become something less than, whereas you were harmed. An action was targeted towards you, and you withstood it, but I don't think you're damaged. I don't think any survivor of this is. So here are some takeaways from my conversation with Mark. First... Every narcissistic relationship is basically a cult of two, and the same manipulation techniques are at play. From Mark's story, we learn that a tool that narcissistic people use early on is data mining. Learning your fears, your vulnerabilities, and showing an intense interest in you. That data ends up being something that will be used to manipulate you down the road. Take your time early in any new relationship, especially when someone is showing overwhelming interest in you. The cult leader that Mark described in his story defies the stereotype that many people have that all narcissists are grandiose narcissists. Narcissism has many faces and the false humility of the vulnerable narcissist or the communal narcissistic type posturing of sort of spiritual guru types who claim to want to make the world a better place can be tricky if we only pay attention to arrogant and pretentious show-offs. Pay attention to red flags and don't get lost in a one-size-fits-all conception of narcissism. Trauma bonding is how people get drawn to and stuck in narcissistic relationships. It's the constant push and pull, days that feel great and you feel so understood, and then days that are confusing and dehumanizing. It becomes a constant state of trying to appease and win over the narcissist to keep the good days coming. Mark likened the back and forth of his relationship to a trance. And when we are in a trance, we are almost hypnotized. Remember that healthy relationships of any kind are stable. Ups and downs are not good for us. And if those ups and downs resemble the early relationships in our life, 
we may get caught in the same chaotic cycles. Getting out of a narcissistic relationship, whether it is a cult or any other kind of relationship, may be more painful than just maintaining the toxic status quo. Once Mark and others decided to not play the game anymore or break ranks, that's when they face the worst of it. Smear campaigns, betrayal by people they believe to be their friends, and being blamed for what's happening. If you are going to step out of a narcissistic relationship, be prepared, have supports, seek out therapy, and have realistic expectations of what is to come. There is no easy way to escape the prison of toxic relationships. Thanks for listening to part one of this interview with Mark Vicente. Make sure to check out the rest of this conversation in part two. A big thank you to our executive producers, Jada Pinkett-Smith, Fallon Jethro, Ellen Rakuten, and Dr. Romani Dervasala. And thank you to our producer, Matthew Jones, associate producer, Mara De La Rosa, and consultant, Kelly Ebeling. And finally, thank you to our editors and sound engineers, Devin Donahy and Calvin Bailiff. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated, we're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Vanessa Bayer, and this is my brother, Jonah. And we are so excited to have you hear the latest season of our nostalgia-themed podcast, How Did We Get Weird? Not only do you get to know me and my brother, you get to know the stories that made us the absolutely rad people we are today. Check out our episodes where we've welcomed hilarious guests like our friend Andy Samberg. That's it! That's really it! And Queen Casey Wilson. I really went cart before the horse. I said, I think I have an opportunity to interview Leonardo DiCaprio. As a high school student. And you do not want to miss out on our funny segments like Change.Dork. <laughs> Change.Dork. And congratulations, you played yourself. Congratulations, you played yourself. Listen to our podcast, How Did We Get Weird, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fear of the unknown is the greatest fear of all. And for millions of Americans, there is no greater unknown than Alzheimer's disease. I'm Dana Torito, a writer and Alzheimer's advocate. On my podcast, The Memory Whisperer, I strive to calm your fears about the disease through thoughtful conversations with experts, care partners, and more. Action is the antidote for fear. Listen to The Memory Whisperer on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. The world is full of magic and wonder, if you know where to look. And I'm obsessed with looking for it. I'm Simon Sinek, and I host a podcast called A Bit of Optimism. Each week, I have a short conversation with someone who inspires me or teaches me something about life, leadership, and other curious things. I hope you'll join me on the journey. Listen to A Bit of Optimism on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.